Hello, friends. Did you miss us? We are back with episode 129 of the Art Wiki Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and yes, it's been a couple of weeks. We'll get to the layoff in a little bit, but I am super excited to be back with you in front of this microphone as I get to talk to my good friend and partner in crime in all this, Mike Thomas. Mike, it's certainly been a minute. How have you been in the past few weeks since we last spoke? It has been a minute. I've been doing well. I've been missing our weekly, as has uh, Matan Hakim, who shouted us out on Fostadon yesterday for uh, not having recorded an episode of our weekly recently. So this this one is for you, Matan. Yes, thank you, Matan. We love we love knowing that we got you know some passionate listeners out there, and we we definitely enjoy doing this. Um, life has been a bit crazy for me personally, where. We had um, uh, a company-wide shutdown week, we call it. So I was out of state enjoying the beaches of South Carolina for a bit. And then um, the week after that, turns out we, uh, for whatever reason, weren't able to get an issue curated. So speaking of, we are back because we do have a new issue this week. And guess who almost forgot it was his turn to be a curator yeah yours truly luckily i was reminded very kindly from our team that yeah eric you're up so that is what we're going to talk about today it is a supersized issue if i dare say so but we got a great selection of topics to banter about and as always i want to give great shout outs to all of you that have sent pull requests to the latest issue i was so happy to merge those in even had a little bit of mishap on one of them that was self-inflicted. But, you know, when you're rusty, it, it tends to happen. But as always, I want to thank all of you for your PRs and, of course, other con- contributors like the rest of you around the world for spreading the word about our weekly and enjoying what we banter about. So let's get right to it, shall we? And we are going to lead off with the what mon- some might say the launching pad for many data scientists who are just maybe starting their journeys with R in the world of data science. It has had a major update, and we are speaking specifically about the R for Data Science book, which has had huge appraise and critically acclaimed from its first edition that was released years ago. Well, they now have both the online version and the print version of the second edition readily available. And we're going to talk about some of the highlights of the second edition, that has been written by Mene Chichenkaya Rundell on the Posit blog. So there's quite a bit to cover here. I'm going to talk about my favorite bits of this. And then, yeah, Mike, I'm sure you got great opinions on this too. But what caught my eye the most was this beefed up programming section, where they did have sections about programming and iteration in the first edition. But what I like about this version of, in this second edition, is... We have a great mix of not just the iteration of what we call MapReduce, running functions on vectors or data frames and the like. We also see snippets of how you can inject variables programmatically in your tidyverse pipelines. This is getting into concepts that Arlang and by proxy closures are giving you access to which has been a difficult topic in years past, but I think the syntax is becoming a lot cleaner for this. Am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. But I think this treatment here is going to go a long way to get people introduced to this effectively, and then they can practice that and go forward with it. 
Other parts that caught my eye were the beefed up importing section, which typically in books like the first edition was covering textual data files. But we got a lot more in this second edition because it covers connections to databases, which anybody in this data science industry as a whole is going to touch a database one way or another at some point. Also, I think this got your attention, Mike, pretty well. Mentions of Arrow and Parquet files. Again, great, great summaries here because we're seeing this a lot more in the mainstays of data science and importing data and also hierarchical data, which means could be like really nested structures that you often see in JSON or coming from web resources. And speaking of web resources, even a new section on web scraping, getting your data via that approach, which again, great approach for modern takes on, on assembling data. Lastly, here's a change that may seem a bit controversial, maybe not, but love your take on this, Mike, is that there is now no section on modeling anymore. The rationale that's been given by Mene and, and others is that they were never able to do this enough justice in their opinion in the first edition. But now with the advent of the tidy models ecosystem, which for has been headed by Max Kuhn and others at Posit, there are now great resources available for that specific part of the data science pipeline. In particular, the tidy models with our book that's been authored by Max and Julia Silge. So definitely check those out if you're into the modeling space. Me personally, I still would have liked to have just at least a little section on it, even if it was more of a teaser for that other material, because I do think modeling is such an important part of data science that even if you quote unquote can't do it enough to cover in a specific section of a chapter or chapters, I think it would have been worth keeping it. And again, minor nitpick in the grand scheme of things. I think it's an excellent edition. And much like the first edition, if you're not sure you want the printed copy just yet, you can look at this online completely for free. I, I love this publishing model because then if I find I like it, guess what? I like having a printed copy to take it with me on these times I'm waiting for my kids' practice to end or something. So I think it's great to have that publishing model still through and through and credit to Paza for still sticking with that method so that you can have the best of both worlds. You can browse to it on your local, you know, electronic device when you need to, but also to give them a little support, you can always buy the printed copy too. Maybe even get it autographed at the upcoming PazaConf. I'm just saying. Um, but in any event, great, great second edition. I will be purchasing the printed copy very soon because the first edition was hugely helpful even for a quote-unquote old-timer like me, who's obviously been using R for many years, yet I love seeing the way these concepts are explained so that I can try to be better at teaching this with others that are new to their journey. So great addition. I'm really looking forward to diving into this even more um, after this episode in the coming months. R for Data Science, I mean, it's just such a pivotal book in my journey, and I know a lot of other journeys to using R and not only using R, but really getting comfortable with R for everything data science. Um, so it, it was really cool to see this book evolve into the second edition and hear about all the different updates, Eric, that you touched on. Uh, another change is in the communicate section of the book, uh, which now features Cordo instead of R Markdown. And, and Mini writes in the blog post that 
Quarto is is clearly the tool of the future, and I agree, Mine. I agree. Um, I'm personally am so excited about the programming section that you mentioned discusses non-standard evaluation a little bit, it sounds like. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at the programming vignette from the dplyr package, and it sounds like we will have this information now in the book, so it'll be great to pick that up in print. I also just love the idea of developing books in the open source, uh, allowing the community to provide feedback, suggestions, and, and even spot typos right that you may have missed. Um, I'm all for the concept that the more eyes on your book, the, the better, because everyone brings different experiences and perspectives to the table in how they consume the content of a book. If you know, I do a lot of instruction and, and teaching as well, and it's it's difficult sometimes to ensure that I am boiling down concepts to the right level. Um, because we're working with different audiences who are at different levels of, of expertise and experience with R. And I imagine that some of those same concepts go along with writing a book. Um, so it, it, in fact, uh, Hadley, Mine, and, and Garrett note that there were 259 people who contributed improvements to the book via GitHub pull requests. 259. And that's that, amazing. <laughs> Love it. That's what I thought. And they're all listed, um, which is amazing. And this number doesn't even include the numerous people who provided their feedback via in-person conversations with the Posit team that, that worked on the book. They're, they're uh, careful to note. So pick up a copy of the book, check it out uh, on the website and take a look at some of the new updates uh, in R4DS. It's uh, amazing uh, to watch not only the ecosystem, the R ecosystem grow, but to watch all of the phenomenal documentation that we have around it grow alongside it yeah it's certainly a much different landscape to get involved in this field than it was these many many years ago <laughs> i was still fumbling my way through grad school and trying to make heads or tails of how our works from both statistics but also just general data processing so certainly it and it also opens your eyes to so many other specific areas in this you know famous workflow that they depict throughout the book about the the data science life cycle if you want to call it that you could have books around every section to be honest and there are some books around these different sections as we just touched on so certainly it's a great gateway if you will to diving into these other aspects that can handle both data science in the traditional sense but also some of the cutting edge ways that we're employing data science via machine learning ai but also just really beefing up the computations as well so we can get our answers quickly leveraging the best that tech has to offer which has been well uh, in my wheelhouse recently so yeah lots of lots of great learning to have here absolutely we have come a long way from the r emailing list uh, right now now we have quite an array of of options for documentation An array, you say? Oh, oh, Mike, you could not have set it up any better, my friend, because our next highlight does have quite a bit to do with arrays in ways you might not expect. Well, our weekly curator, Jonathan Carroll, is back with documenting his latest programming adventures in other languages. 
And I dare say the one we're going to talk about here does not get a lot of mainstream coverage, but it's going to open your eyes to a few very interesting concepts here. Now, to set the stage a little bit, John's been upping his programming language game, so to speak, because he participates quite regularly in these what are called cold golf exercises that you often see online and other online challenges. And during his research recently, he stumbled upon a video authored by a group called Code Report that had multiple solutions to a problem, and in this case, finding the greatest common divisor of both smallest and largest numbers inside an array. This sounds like one of those programming challenges you might get perhaps in a job interview or something. I have no idea. I'm just, just spitballing that. But one of the solutions that was in this video that immediately caught John's eye was using APL. What is APL, you ask? That is Array-Oriented Programming Language. And in fact, it actually stood for A Programming Language when I did research on this as I was typing up these notes here. If that is in the script, I don't know what is. But Are in you any, serious? I am serious. Yes, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Um, <laughs> so first aha moment right there. Love the name of it. But then the solution itself that John saw in this video, we're not going to see calls to functions in the traditional, you might say, verbose sense, where it's writing the name of the function, putting some arguments inside. The solution to this in APL was literally a set of five glyphs, i.e. special characters. You heard me right, five glyphs. Well, um, after I got over that shock, I obviously read the rest of John's findings here. Apparently, this APL language has about 80 of these glyphs that are actually front ends to different operators. Unbelievable. Now, uh, I, I will admit this seemed pretty daunting at me, but, but John's approach is not unlike what I would do when I'm learning a new, new language to me anyway. In fact, I've been kind of living this the past few months as I've been slowly getting into a bit of Shiny for Python, i.e. doing a little bit of Python on the side. Don't worry, still an R evangelist through and through, just saying, just saying. But what John did in this post is he took some existing solutions that he's come up with or found in these other tutorials that were written in, say, R or even Julia, and then seeing what would the APL version of the solution look like. And it turns out some of these, once you get a hang of how these glyphs work, can be really concise transformations or solutions to common matrix operations, such as like finding averages of rows, other reshaping situations. It definitely takes a bit to get your head around, but I think the big picture here is that this APL language takes a very functional approach and these glyphs just happen to be front ends to, in essence, chaining these different bits of the operation together. In fact, one Easter egg, if you will, that as I read this post is that there is a glyph for the assignment operator that we type routinely in the R every day. There's a glyph for it, and it's actually supported in this language to do what you expect it does. It assigns it to a variable. So <laughs> credit for APL for he's having that as well. Um, but I'm going to be first to admit, I'm probably not going to use APL in my day-to-day -day job, 
but it's interesting to see however languages approach how to have a concise language but yet with the right you might say attention to detail or, or getting up to speed with it you can compose some pretty complex operations together and at least in the authors of this APL language seem to push out is that once you get a hang of these glyphs it is highly readable and once you once again once you get the hang of it so again probably not something I'm going to do tomorrow or anything but um, it's great to challenge yourself sometimes I think John has definitely done that and it sounds like he's had some interesting perspectives that were open thanks to exploring APL and, and seeing how that translates with some of the functional programming principles he's been learning with R and other languages and the object-oriented approach as well. So, yeah, come for the glyphs. I guess stay for the elegance of how short these solutions are. I don't know. I'm just saying. So, Mike, are, is your head blown like I was when I first read this? Yeah, ab absolutely. We've seen some blog posts that, like, compare two programming languages, a lot of times R and Python, side by side, right? And uh, this one was, I guess, similar in nature, but very different in syntax. Uh, I've, got, I've got some serious imposter syndrome going on after reading that Jonathan has been learning at least one new programming language per month. I've got R down pretty well, although I learn something new every week through R Weekly at least, and I write a lot of Python and SQL as well, if that counts as a language. But man, a, a new programming language every month, uh, that is giving me all the imposter syndrome. <laughs> so I do think, however, that, that learning a new programming language can give you a ton of new perspective on the language or languages you already know. And it's always, to me, really interesting to see the, the different language design decisions that the authors chose, although I would imagine that APL is, is probably such an extreme in terms of uh, language design. But, but compare it to uh, compare that design to, to the design of the languages that, that you do use. I think that's a really cool exercise that can go a long way towards trying to write code that strikes that perfect balance in my mind of both ease of interpretability and conciseness at the same time. You don't want to be too concise that people can't understand what's going on, but you uh, don't want to be so verbose that your, your code is longer than it necessarily needs to be. Um, to, to make things readable and, and legible for end audiences. I often see a function in Python and say, you know, whoa, I, I wonder if there's an equivalent function in R. And spoiler, 99% of the time, there is an equivalent function in R. A lot of times in base R and some of those base functions that you, you didn't even know necessarily existed. Jonathan notes that you know the ability to hide and abstract the looping over dimensions and to work directly with objects uh, with more than one dimension is what qualifies R as an array language. So that, that's where uh, th this whole concept of working with arrays comes from. And like you said, Eric, uh, just going through the blog post and, and seeing APL's syntax that's based on glyphs is is a pretty wild uh, walk on the wild side, if you will, into uh, that programming language, which now I know stands for a programming language. And it is a programming language. So <laughs> we got to give them that. But really interesting blog post. Uh, and it's like the more you know, right? Here's this, here's this language that, that exists and uh, it's out there. Yep. And, and I think, again, well, getting a well-rounded experience, especially as you're thinking about going 
you might say more into this programming track of solutions. Like I, I work with people day to day that are really trying to get a little level with Bayesian convergence algorithms and the like, and really eking out both performance, but also leveraging the cutting edge of stats, but also object processing, transposing all these things. I think it's great to see how others approach that. And yeah, I'm still, I'm, I admit, I did not expect to learn about any of this, but Hey, you know what? Uh, John is doing, doing awesome work on this. And speaking of John, I do consider him a good friend. We've been involved with our weekly for many years. He just recently uh, sent a uh, toot on his Mastodon account that apparently he's going to have some capacity to work on some additional projects. So if you want someone with the talents of John, um, get in touch with him. We'll have a link to that post in our show notes as well but um yeah i if this is any indication he will go down all the rabbit holes he can think of to come up with a with a great solution i'd imagine <laughs> yeah john you may be getting a dm shortly uh there just might be one caveat no no apl yeah yeah don't hold your breath on that but i i, I tend to think he might be open to other stuff too but um i digress right <laughs> yes So I get great pleasure, Mike, whenever I see a highlight that is quite literally the intersection of my two favorite areas I'm pursuing at this moment, which, of course, is data science with R, but also lower level open source software operating system principles, especially with Linux. This third highlight is right up that alley. Now, in previous episodes, we talked about reproducibility, I would say, on a few levels Two in particular, especially. First is leveraging reproducibility in R itself. This has been attacked with various solutions such as RMV, the package management system in R, as well as other solutions that utilize what we call snapshot-based package installation. There's a package called Groundhog that we talked about before that is a front end to things like that. But then there's another level, and that is the overall reproducibility of your execution environment, i.e. the the system dependencies that these packages have and the like. And what's gotten the most attention is container technology with runtimes such as Docker, others in this space as well. And that is a great combination, such a great combination that the author of this last highlight has written a 500-plus page book about these principles. And yes, that is Bruno Rodriguez, but he's not just talking about his book here. What he's talking about is the intersection of reproducibility in R with what's called the Nix packaging system. Now, I'm not talking about a shorthand for Unix here. I'm talking about Nix. Nix is what it says, a packaging system that you could actually run on not just Linux servers. You could run this on Mac OS. You can run it even on Windows with a little help from WSL or the Windows subsystem for Linux. And it is basically giving us a more easy way that on a system level to have sandboxed, separated environments for a given software package and, when, and package literally being like if I want to install like Firefox, for example, Nix will have a package for Firefox, that browser, or anything like that. Guess what? 
R is in this ecosystem too. So it will separate this out. It'll be self-contained. And when you want to do operations in this sandbox, it even has its own quote unquote shell environment, meaning that it is completely independent of anything else on your host system. Does this sound familiar? It does sound awful like containers, doesn't it? But it's not using containers. It's using some more clever tricks under the hood that admittedly I don't have my full head around just yet. But boy, does this sound attractive to me. And it also has been explored heavily by my friends at Jupiter Broadcasting who run the uh, very critically acclaimed Linux Unplugged program where they took a challenge in 2022 of using Nix packages for their production systems. And they love it because this is the concept of what we call an immutable type operating system or package environment. Meaning that whatever happens on the host or what you do in your little you know, sandbox of a user home directory or whatnot, you're not going to affect anything else in these other Nix OX or Nix packages that have been installed on your system. And in, a, in the case of R here, this means that you can have multiple installations of R, if you want, that will be completely independent of each other alongside different versions of packages. That's where it really gets interesting to me. I'm still wrapping my head around that intersection, but boy, this does sound like something I want to explore because I think this could have great impact on not just making my host system that I do in my data science work on a little more reproducible and making each project have its own environment. But this could extend to other utilities as well. And I could have it all in one place. That is pretty mind-blowing to me. So I'd imagine after a, a little thing called our uh, Shiny Workshop that is, after, is done in September, I think I want to explore NixOS. So I'm pretty sold on it. But Mike, why don't you take us through what sold you on what Bruno's talking about here? Yeah, uh, Bruno is back at it again. He, he can't stop writing. And like you, I was really blown away by the idea of Nix and, and what Bruno describes in terms of its capability. And he's, he's fresh off the heels, like you said, of his, his book, Building Reproducible Analytical Pipelines with R, being published and, and publicly available for free online or purchase via Amazon. Uh, you can use code Mike and Eric for 97% off. Um, <laughs> That's a joke. That code will actually not work, uh, but you still should. You still should get the book. That one was just in case Bruno was listening uh, to make him nervous for for half a second. But no one is getting ninety seven percent off off the book. But you should still buy it. Uh, he's authored this blog post, very similarly titled "Reproducible Data Science with Nix," uh, which, like I said, is a tool I wasn't familiar with. It's it's cool to hear that you had some inkling from your Jupiter Broadcasting friends in terms of their use with it. And like you said, Eric, currently to achieve that that full reproducibility between operating system, R version, and, and R package versions, I think the best practice that we have right now is that combination of, of Docker and the, the RN package or, or some of the tangential packages that exist. Groundhog, I think, as well as another one of them for uh, or Packrat, if you really want to go, go far back um, in terms of isolating your our package environment. But it looks like Nix may be a potential alternative solution to Docker and RN. And 
And Nix is a package manager for, for not only Linux distributions, but also Mac and Windows, which I think is unique. And, and interestingly, the, the 80,000 pieces of software that are contained in Nix's repository includes the entirety of CRAN, um, which means that instead of installing R, as you usually do, and then use uh, install.packages, calling that from within R to install your individual R packages, you can use Nix to, to handle everything um, at the outset. And Nix also allows you to install software in relatively isolated environments, which, which mean that from project to project, you could have different flavors of R, as you said, Eric, and, and associated R packages installed specific to that individual project which could differ from the next project. It sounds a lot like containers. Uh, and similarly to the R2U project, which we've discussed uh, in the past, Nick Nix also automatically installs the required system dependencies uh, that might exist below some of those packages that you're installing, like uh, XLSX, for, for instance, for working with Excel uh, files that requires our Java um, or an installation of Java on that, that machine. So... For those of us who remember life in Docker before R2U existed, uh, you know that this is a huge quality of life improvement that Nix also offers. And speaking of Docker, Nix allows you to write an environment file called default.nix to specify the specific software and dependencies you would like to have installed for the project you're working on. And in my opinion, the syntax for that uh, environment file is a little uglier than a Docker file. In, uh, but it still looks pretty concise at the end of the day. The one that Bruno uh, articulates in the blog is is pretty small, I think 10 lines or so. And Bruno provides some nice sort of summarized thoughts at the end of the blog post that were really helpful for me in, in wrapping my brain around uh, Nix. And he notes that it's powerful, but there are some considerations you should be aware of, uh, including if you need to install specific versions of R packages that are not pinned to dates, then Nix is, is probably not for you. Um, he says that our packages that are available on the stable channel of Nix packages lag a bit behind their counterparts on CRAN. So you might not be able to install from Nix's package uh, software repository the latest and greatest uh, versions of R or, or R packages from CRAN. And if you need something that's not on CRAN or Bioconductor, uh, it's still possible to use Nix to install those packages, but you'll have to perform some manual configuration in order to do that. It's not super straightforward. So it sounds like maybe Bruno is on the cutting edge of Nix plus R, and maybe we will learn some more in the future about how these two different pieces of software can, can work together. Yeah, speaking of cutting edge, I literally, as you were talking through this, got a little... Uh buzz on my phone because i'm a, a shameless follower of bruno on mastodon and he just had a toot that i'm going to read here because i think it fits very appropriate he says learning nix and how to use it for r makes me feel like an absolute beginner haven't felt this way since learning a new tool for at least 10 years it's humbling the nix community has been really helpful so many thanks to them so let's let's go on that a bit because that perfect segue to what i wanted to chime in on there is a great community around Nix, and I think that is getting a lot of renewed enthusiasm because what I've learned, again, from my friends at Jupiter Broadcasting is that there is a renewed interest in this idea of having a base system that is almost impossible for you as the end user to mess up, but that you can have your 
custom utilities, custom packages installed in a sandbox way so that if something breaks for whatever reason, guess what? Because this configuration is driven by that aforementioned text file, you could literally just rerun that and be back up and running. Like it is kind of like a restore point, if you will. And imagine you put that configuration file in your Git repository or GitHub or something like that. Then if you have a catastrophe, pull that back down, back where you left off. So I think that is a great aspect of this reproducibility um, angle to it. But speaking of community, this gets really interesting. It's kind of like really in the weeds here for my hobby as a Linux enthusiast. But one of the people I follow closely, um, who's also the author of a Linux distribution called Ubuntu Monte, named Martin Wimpress, who literally is the one that taught me all my streaming tricks that I've done in the Shiny Dev Series live stream. He actually is now working for a vendor that makes Nix OS even better. So he's pointed me to some resources I have in the show notes, one of which in particular is called Zero to Nix, an unofficial opinionated general introduction to Nix. I would go there if you want to learn more about how Nix works because you could run this, like I said, without installing or wiping out the rest of your system. You can have just the Nix package manager on your existing system. Get a play with it. And maybe if you like it so much and you have a spare machine, then you could throw Nix OS on it. But this guide that I'm linking to will get, get you through these different steps, the different concepts of what makes Nix unique compared to other distributions or other operating systems and tangible examples of setting up like web-based development environments or other utilities. So definitely check that out. I also have linked the episode from Jupiter Broadcasting's Linux Unplugged program where they start taking on the challenge, their initial impressions, but that also has a boatload of resources that they talk about. I think um, this is me in this kind of pie in the sky outline here. So keep me checked, Mike, as I say this, but just imagine having a configuration for Nix as part of like a reproducible analysis for a manuscript or even better, a reproducible environment that you pass on to maybe a very, very important group that you want to share your analysis with. Maybe they're in regulatory, who knows? Just imagine being able to share that so that you didn't have to futz with them manually getting the right R version, the right set of packages, that if you had a Nix file and they had the Nix package manager installed, they could get their environment completely sandboxed and try your project or reproduce your results and then when they're done, they can just blow it away if they want. I think Nix could be great for that. Again, just saying. Totally agree. Totally agree. I just, I guess I'll play devil's advocate a little bit. And because I hadn't heard about Nix, I, I wonder uh, if the advantages or maybe the efficiencies or, or improvements in conciseness around creating a an isolated Nix environment outweigh what's already been developed in Docker, which... I'm going to argue might be a lot more popular than folks from that particular hypothetical regulatory agency may may be familiar with Docker, but may not be familiar with Nix. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, I, 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 I do admit this is quite niche in this stage right now. Now, those that have been involved with the Nix community are quick to say Nix has been around for many, many years. It just you know, like many things sometimes just goes under the radar a little bit. But, you know, these are all just ideas that are all tackling the same problem. We'll have to see how this 
if it does take foothold in data science that you know Bruno's going to be helping lead the charge on this it sounds like and I'm very eager to follow suit once I get through that uh, that little workshop we're about to do in September to really explore this and see what I can do with my uh, projects down the road. I do have, full disclosure, a very containerized setup for all my open source work, and that's not going away anytime soon because, well, it took me many months to come up with that, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that train going, but... Much like what John was doing with his programming adventures, it's great to see different solutions in the space and kind of comparing the principles behind it. So I'm really intrigued by it. And like I said, if any of this sounds intriguing to you in terms of like what Nick's offers as a whole, check the show notes. I got great resources for you to look at. I have no doubt that you will uh, install Nick's inside of your Docker containerized environment. Which ironically, Bruno does say is entirely possible. So yeah. <laughs> Isolation in, inception. And yeah. in, I see, yep, you couldn't have said it better. I couldn't have said it better myself. So, um, well, not so much inception, but you know what? I think it's a pretty cool issue. And I'm not just saying that because I curated it. We had we had to make up for lost time, so to speak, although it is a supersized issue. So we'll talk a little bit about some additional finds here. And um, for me, there have been some interesting improvements in Epsilon's Rhino package, which for those that aren't aware, is their take on an opinionated framework for Shiny App development. They had just had release of version 1.4, which beefs up the idea of dependency installation being some more convenient functions in front of RM that it heavily integrates with their setup. Some more um, readily available support for React, if you want to tap into that for your Shiny apps with some of their custom packages. A bit more improvement on the box modules, which again, from the speaker perspective here, is still the hardest part to get my head around with Rhino, is the idea of box for the uh, namespace, um, you know, namespace separation and the like. And they've beefed up their internal testing to make sure that they're not introducing bugs or regressions as a update Rhino. And alongside that, there is also a link in the issue to their take on actually converting the shiny application that myself and others have produced that has been submitted to the FDA as part of our R Consortium Submissions Working Group. They have created a Rhino version of that app to kind of compare and contrast what the frameworks like might look like, what was different, what was similar. And that is also available if you want to check that out. Um, now, full disclosure, the app I did produce for the pilot was written in Golem, which um, we have on this show are big fans of, and it has um, served us quite well in that pilot. Um, we also got good feedback from our reviewers. They enjoyed having it as an R package in this submission, which was precedence from our previous efforts on that. So again, there's choice here. Golem, Rhino, perhaps even other frameworks that, that are not as well known. It's really about what you find is most important, right? If you're coming from R, I think Golem is one of the most solid approaches. It is, fits right in to how you encapsulate functions, encapsulate documentation and everything. But Rhino may be more approachable from a software developer that maybe is used to web apps in the past or Python-esque workflows. Again, Choose what you want. In the end, you want to make a high-quality app, but we're just having that as an alternative out there in case others want to see what Rhino might look like in this space. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Those are some pretty cool updates. Uh, it's 
always interesting to me. I guess it's sort of like that R versus those blogs that, that do something in R and then do them in Python. It's always interesting to see sort of side-by-side approaches to the same problem and interesting to see Absalon Rhinoize, uh, the, the app that you had worked on, Eric. Uh, and, you know, one thing that they do note in the blog post a couple times over is, you know, really emphasizing the fact that the app doesn't necessarily... Uh, doesn't need to be an R package. And I will, I guess, push back on that a little bit and say, hey, what's so bad about an app being an R package? And that's a rhetorical question. I don't need anybody uh, you know, writing up a blog post to answer that question because I'm sure I have seen uh, responses to that. But that's that's just going to live as a rhetorical question. And at the end of the day, again, it's it's nice to see different approaches to the to the same problem because, as you said, some folks uh, may be better suited for one approach as opposed to the other. Well said. <laughs> well, what did you find, Mike? Yeah, I found a couple things. Uh, I wanted to congratulate the Posit team on the version 1.0.0 release of RN. For those of us that know RM and have been using it, uh, what a game changer that package has been for us in the R community. It's saved me probably more times than I can count. It's made my work much more reproducible uh, in ways that weren't possible really before RM came along. Um, the functionality and the ease of, of its user interface and the user experience you have with that, the API is, is so nice compared to some of the other package management packages that I've used in the past, especially thinking about a lot of the ones that exist in Python that I've wrestled with for years. Uh, I, I just can't really compare them to how nice our end is to use. So I appreciate the Posit team for, for making that package so user-friendly. And the other thing that I will note, because this is a supersized episode, I'll call out one more uh, article from the highlights is James Wade has a three-part video series on YouTube on building a chatbot with OpenAI, Shiny, and R. It's an awesome series. Uh, if you have some time, it's chunked up into three small parts. So, so absolutely check it out because it is obviously at the at the cutting edge of, of what is going on in data science these days and it's it's all r and shiny all the time so uh, i'm loving uh, the content that james has put together yeah when i i saw those come through i there was no way i couldn't put that into the issue because that, that is some excellent material admittedly it gets me really more envious to get back on that live streaming train and show some of my stuff because boy that's inspiring to see what james has been producing here and we are really I mean, with the advent of obviously the the large language models and what he's been doing with his GPT tools package and the like, and he's very talented, shiny developer. It, it is just such a perfect intersection of how all that works. So I'm, yeah, I, I'm really glad to see James in that. And yeah, I've got some catching up to do, it sounds like. But yeah, I hope I can get back on that train sooner than later. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah. We got to get you to some live streams with me, Mike. That would be super it's fun. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get close to that, though, because you and I are teaching a workshop in September about advanced shining development. And yes, there will be live coding in that, I'm sure. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Very true. I believe it is the uh, workshop with one of the, the highest attendances so far, registrations uh, so far. But it is in one of the largest rooms at the conference. So there is still plenty of room, I believe, Yes, uh, for true. anyone who wants to join our workshop on uh, productionizing your Shiny apps. So please join us, and, and we're excited to see folks in Chicago. 
Absolutely. And if you are interested, we'll have a link in the show notes where you can get up and running with all that. And um, yeah, it's going to be a great event. And you know, sometimes the best ways that you learn from instructors like myself is when things don't go as planned. And trust me, there will be situations like that where you see some live debugging because it's almost impossible not to. But I always enjoy learning how people solve complicated problems. And yeah, with what Mike and I have encountered over the years, we'll definitely have some examples that both planned and likely unplanned as well. So <laughs> very true. Yep, but hopefully this podcast has not had any bugs in recording. It's all look good to me, but we're going to wrap things up here by giving you, as always, our our um, ways that you can help the show and help the Wiki project itself. First of which is if you find a great resource online, maybe a great blog post, new package, updated package, or a call to action, feel free to give us a pull request. It's all at rweekly.org. The current draft of the issue is directly linked at the top, the markdown format all marked down all the time so pretty easy to get up and running with that so we'd love to have your contributions and merge that into our upcoming issue and also if you want to get in touch with us uh, as a team we have links in rweekly.org if you want to get involved and probably join our team as a curator we definitely have spots available so feel free to get in touch with us for that find details again on the website and if you want to get in touch with your friendly little host here we got a contact page directly in the show notes of this episode you can hit us up there also feel free to give us a shout on social media as well i am sporadically on twitter with fdr podcast but also on mastodon at our podcast at podcast index social and if you are listening through a modern podcast app such as podverse or fountain you can send us a little boost along the way and we'll have details on how you can do that in the show notes as well but uh, Mike, where can the listeners find you? Sure, you can find me on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. And you can find me on Threads Nowhere. Yes, same with me. I have not jumped on that just yet. And I don't think I will unless I get a huge push for it. But I am quite happy where I am because I got too much to manage already. I don't think I need yet another social media account to manage. <laughs> Absolutely not. And I like that on Mastodon. I just see posts from my friends. That's right. And I think that's a case where you don't need an algorithm for everything. There's your hot take for today. Anyway. We'll probably get out of here before I do even more hot takes and eliminate <laughs> myself. But with nonetheless, we've really enjoyed getting back behind the mic for our weekly. And we're going to keep the train rolling as always with another episode coming up next week. Until then, take care and enjoy your R learning adventures with our weekly. <laughs>